Um, we're reading from Exodus chapter 5, verse 15 to 23. Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants have been beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realised they were in trouble when they were told you were not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon these people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon these people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Good afternoon. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Glad you could join us. Hope you're surviving. Now it's all of week four of the year. So you're starting to get into the groove of things and I'm really pleased to see that you're here at an EU public meeting taking a bit of time out out of your busy week, no doubt, to actually stop and reflect with us on what God has to say to us through his word in the scriptures. That's a great thing that you've done to turn up today. And so why don't I lead us in prayer and pray that he might do just that, that he might speak to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have to gather together around your word and listen to what you have to say. So we pray, Father, you might give us open ears and willing hearts and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable now and always in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, a little bit of a quiz. How well do you know the clichés of our culture? If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. When you fall off your bike, yeah, see, this, I struggled there. There's not really a saying to go with, is it? But we all have that sense that when you fall off a bike, you're meant to get back on. But I couldn't think of the saying that captures it if you fall off your horse. I was thinking, get back on your bike, Grandma. But I don't know that's a saying. I think that's just something I've said in my life. Not to my grandparents, they're all dead. But anyway, um, oh yeah, I know, it's terribly sad. Uh, well, it's easy to say, isn't it? If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. We can answer that cliche with another one. It's much easier said, it's much easier said than done. If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. That's much easier said than actually done. Because reality is that when failure comes, it's pretty difficult to keep on going. I don't know if you've experienced failure. Failure can be very debilitating. Uh, I'm not talking about, oh, I failed to win the meat tray at the pub raffle I went to. I'm not talking about failure at that sort of, sort of level. I'm talking about significant failure. Maybe you're not doing the course here at uni that you wished you were. Maybe you failed to get into the course you wanted. Maybe you have failed in various relationships. Maybe you failed in a job application that you really had your heart set upon. 
faith it can be quite difficult sometimes to just, you know, keep on going. Hang on a minute though, I want us just to think about it. If you're a Christian person, if you're God's child, then should failure really be part of your life? Should it be part of your experience? Let me tell you why I think that. God, the one true God who is, is all powerful, right? He's sovereign, in control of all things. He can do anything he likes. Add that enormous power of God to his great love. He loves you as a Christian, as a person who's his child, who's put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's all powerful and he loves you. Then why the heck do you experience failure? Why do you experience failure in your life? What happens when I'm a victim of a serious crime? What happens when my child dies? What happens when a family member is struck down with mental illness? What happens when I'm unemployed? What happens when I'm discriminated against because of my faith or my race? Where is the one true God, this sovereign and loving, powerful God? Where is this God who's made all these promises to us? Where is the God of promise? when failure comes first. Over the last two weeks, if you've been joining with us, we've been looking at events in the early family history of God's people. The events associated with God's great rescue of his people out of Egypt, as it's recorded for us in the second book of the Christian Bible, the book of Exodus. And today as we look at Exodus 5 and 6, we're going to see the struggle that God's people had when failure came first. They met with failure rather than success. And as we've seen previously over these weeks, the answer to these problems is not, now another cliche coming here, to lift yourself up by your... The answer is not to lift yourself up by your bootstraps when failure comes first. The answer we'll see as we look at Exodus 5 and 6, as it has been all the way through this book of Exodus, the answer to our problems lies in the character of God the character and power and action and promises of the one true God. So that's what we're going to be exploring a bit today. But let's get into the text and seek to get our minds around this part of God's Word. I hope you've got Exodus chapter 5 and 6 open there, or at least maybe you can look on with somebody next to you. A bit of a flying recap what's happened so far. Well, God's people, Israel, are terribly oppressed in slavery in a foreign land the land of Egypt. They've been stuck in Egypt outside the land that God had promised them for more than 400 years, 400 plus years they've been there. But now God has appeared to one man, Moses, as we saw last week, the most reluctant prophet ever. And God has charged Moses to go to Pharaoh and to secure the release of the Israelites. And that took a bit of convincing for Moses to do that, as we saw last week. But at the end of chapter 4, we saw Moses head back to Egypt. He spoke to the elders of the Israelites and remember what happened? They believed. They believed that yes, God had appeared to Moses and they believed that yes, God was now going to do something. So they believed and they bowed down and worshipped. That's what we read there. So the stage is now set for Moses, accompanied by his media relations spokesperson, otherwise known as his brother Aaron, to go to Pharaoh and to say release God's people. So the stage is set, that's what's happening as we come to chapter 5. 
Now, to move us through chapters 5 and 6, I've got down six brief headings, paraphrasing the tone, if you like, of the development of the story. And we're going to move through these quite, quite quickly. So, first of all, first heading. You've got to be kidding. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Moses and Aaron, they go and speak to Pharaoh and they relay to him God's command to let his people go. Note, they don't come and say, pretty please, Pharaoh, please let God's people go. This is not a request. This comes as a demand. Now, I'm constantly trying to instil in my five children that when you'd like something, you should say, please. And when you get the thing that you would like, you should say, thank you. It's just a small project of mine to try to instill a small level of civility and politeness into our family life. Uh, I estimate it'll probably take about 17 years per child to achieve this. Uh, but notice here, this is not a please and thank you moment when Aaron and Moses turn up for Pharaoh. This is not a request. This is a command from the Lord, from Yahweh. Moses and Aaron aren't being rude because the one true God, the God of Israel, is pulling rank here over Pharaoh. Let my people go. But Pharaoh won't have a bar of it. Look there in verse 2 of chapter 5. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should heed him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And then they repeat God's command in verse 3 and then Pharaoh pulls out what must be the ultimate counter-argument. Interestingly, powerful argument back then, powerful argument now. What's the powerful argument? Economic pragmatism. That will win any debate, economic pragmatism. I mean, in our society, if a scientist says something, Ooh, that's worth listening to. If an economist says something, well, that's just common sense. You've just got to do that. They win hands down. Well, Pharaoh here pulls out an economically pragmatic argument. Verse 4, he says, you're trying to take away the people from their work. Now, you can see why he was so worried about that in verse 5. The Israelites are very numerous, but you want them to stop working. That is... This is not a few blokes who want to sort of take a three-day long weekend. This is a whole nation of people, hundreds of thousands of people, who want to down tools and head out for a religious festival. The whole economic system is going to collapse if we do that. They are so numerous, and you want to take them away from their work. That's ridiculous. It's just, it just can't be done. It would be stupidity. Economic suicide. No way, Jose. Well, that's what you've got to be kidding, but it goes there. You're still on the ball from bad to worse. Well done, from bad to worse. Exodus 5, 6 to 18. Pharaoh, see, has his own analysis of what's actually going on. According to Pharaoh, this fallacious religious thinking, this false religious thinking, is a luxury of the leisurely and lazy. It's a luxury of the leisurely and lazy. They've just got too much time on their hands, see things. That's why they're entertaining these false religious ideas. I'm presuming, see, that Pharaoh is not anti-religion. He's not purely secular in that sense. We know from the scriptures that the Egyptians had plenty of gods of their own. You might like to jot down some of these references. Exodus 12.12 talks about the gods of the Egyptians. Exodus 12.12 or Numbers 33.4. And a third one that's particularly helpful for us today 
is Joshua 24.14. You might like to get that down. Joshua 24.14, which tells us that while the Israelites were in Egypt, they were worshipping the Egyptian gods. While the Israelites were in Egypt, they were worshipping the Egyptian gods. So I take it, Pharaoh's thought here was, because the Israelites had it too easy, they were now inventing new religious ideas as an excuse to sort of get out of work. You know, oh, look, boss, um, I've uh, been converted to uh, campism. And uh, it's a great religion. And uh, in particular, it means I need to now um, go on a three-month sort of religious uh, journey, you know, out to sort of Uluru and the... Yeah, I mean, you'd hate to discriminate against me for my religious beliefs, wouldn't you? So, you know, I'll just... I'll be off now. See you in three months. <laughs> that is, he's gone, this is, this is fallacious religious thinking. Notice what he says there in verses 6 to 9. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they've made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they say, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labour at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. If we work them hard, they won't listen to these lies. So make them go and get the straw for the bricks, but make them get the same quantity of bricks. Pharaoh repeats his analysis down there in verse 17. He says, You are lazy, lazy! That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So for the Israelites here, the situation has gone from bad, under oppressive slavery, terrible oppressive slavery, to much worse. No lessening in the number of bricks demanded, but now a key ingredient no longer supplied. That's going to be a significant escalation of what's required. And it's enforced there, you read, because uh, the Israelite supervisors are beaten whenever the quote is not met. And it seems from reading the text there that just a few days later, maybe even just the third day after this new regime was enforced, the Israelite supervisors go to Pharaoh and they try to appeal to Pharaoh's sense of justice. You know, Pharaoh, this is not reasonable. It's not our fault we can't meet this quantity. You've taken away what we needed to in order to meet the quota. So, you know, fair go. But uh, their appeal is ignored by Pharaoh. And so that brings us to, I think, a key moment in this narrative. Pharaoh has ignored the Lord's command to let the people go and their situation has gone from bad to worse. How are God's people going to respond here? How are they going to respond when their situation, instead of improving, goes from bad to worse? Now we're not left guessing here because the narrative goes on to tell us how they responded. First of all we get the response of the Israelite supervisors. What do they say? They say, Moses, thanks for nothing. Chapter 5, 19 to 21. Uh, the Israelite supervisors, we read there, saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not lessen your number of daily bricks. And as they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, The Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odour with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
what follows failure? Usually finger pointing. Whose fault is this? And they say, thanks for nothing, Moses, Aaron. Because you opened your big mouth, our light has got a heck of a lot worse. You've made us like a bad smell. The Egyptians hate us like a bad case of B.O. They can't stand us. What's more, with these new workplace conditions, we're going to be crushed into non-existence. Thanks for nothing. But it doesn't stop there. Moses then decides to do his own bit of finger pointing. But he doesn't point the finger back at the Israelites. He decides he'll point the finger at God. Have a look there where Moses says, Lord, this is all your fault. Chapter 5, verse 22, 23. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people. And you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. Now, may I say that's a pretty big call. To say to the Lord, you've done nothing to deliver your people. In fact, I've come to Pharaoh, I've paid my part of the bargain and you've done nothing at all to deliver this people, your people. Moses isn't going to take the blame here. He sheets it home to the one to whom it belongs, the Lord. It's his fault. I think it's amazing here how quickly things have descended from the end of chapter 4. Do you remember what happened at the end of chapter 4? Moses and Aaron, they get back to Egypt, they talk to the elders and the elders believe and fall down and worship. And now what's happening here? Finger pointing the law. Everyone's blaming everybody else. The Israelites are blaming Moses and Moses is pointing the finger at God. It's quite a significant regeneration uh, in just a short period of time. But then again, maybe it's understandable. Maybe it is understandable. I mean, our response sometimes is very similar. Have you ever said something like this, you know? Lord, you know, I've really tried to be honest in my job, in my workplace. I've refused to bend the truth like they wanted me to. But now I've been sidelined. They're making fun of me. They're overlooking me for promotions. Lord, what is that about? Or, Lord, I had what I thought were good and godly boundaries in my relationship with that person. But now they've gone and dumped me for it. That's not right. I've held up my side of the bargain. Where's the blessing from your hand? You've done nothing here, God. So maybe it's understandable. You know, the situation wasn't good before, God made some promises, but now it's just got worse. This wasn't what they were expecting. If we just had just like a modicum of empathy for them, surely we go, yes, understandable response. Understandable? Well, at some level, yes, as a human response. But I want to say no. It is inexcusable to have that sort of response. Inexcusable. We shouldn't sugarcoat our forefathers' lack of trust here, lack of faith in God. Because that's what it is. Before we act with excessive sympathy and sort of read ourselves into the situation and go, oh, well, you know, that's an understandable sort of response, let's actually take our response from the way the Lord responds. And that's what we get to in chapter 6. 
And the Lord's response is very gracious to this lack of faith, lack of trust, but also his response is very clear. So let's go to heading number five, reality check. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. The Lord there starts by speaking to Moses and he gives Moses a message to Moses and then a message for the Israelites to pass on. And he starts by announcing to Moses in verse 1 that, Moses, you're going to see what I'm going to do. I mean, you think I've done nothing. You're about to see what I'm going to do. And then he develops it, he develops two particular points which are to do with God's name and his covenant. What God will say to Moses is about his name and his covenant and what he'll say to the Israelites is about his name and his covenant. The two are tied closely together. Uh, Because when God talks about his name, he's talking about his character. He's talking about his power. And when he's talking about his covenant, he's talking about his promises. So he says a couple of different things. I've got them up here. First of all, he says to Moses, Moses, you know better than this. That's in uh, verses 2 and 3 there of chapter 6. Have a look. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What's that about? Well, I think what the Lord is saying here to Moses is, Moses, you're in a privileged position. I've revealed myself, my name, my character, my power to you to a greater extent than anyone's really known before. You know who I am. You know what I can do. Moreover, do you remember when the Lord revealed his name to Moses? We met it just last week. Chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible there, just flick back to chapter 3. Have a look at it. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. The Lord reveals his name to Moses in chapter 3, 14 and 15. What else did the Lord tell Moses at that time, tied into his character? Well, verses 16 and 17, the Lord gives that instruction to Moses to go and speak to the elders of Israel and tell them that he's going to save them. But then notice what he says to them in verses 18 and 20. The Lord says to Moses, They, the elders, will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And the Lord continues, I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, you remember the point I made about this briefly last week. Moses, you not only know my name, my character, my power, what I can do, I'm telling you the whole game plan. I'm telling you exactly, this is like knowing all the chess moves before the game's even happened. You'll go to the elders and they'll believe you. You'll go to Pharaoh and he won't. But then I'll do these wonderful signs and after that he'll let you go. I'm just telling you, telling you it all, Moses, laying it all out before you. You can tell all the Israelites about it. Given that sort of information, when they turned up to Pharaoh and he wouldn't let them go, why are they so surprised? That's exactly what God had said would happen. This is an understandable lack of faith. This is just inexcusable. This is a blatant not believing what God had said in terms of how it would all happen. Moses, you know better than this. Why are you accusing me of doing nothing? Second thing he says to Moses is, he reassures Moses, he says, Moses, look, I am on the job. 
chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, um, in answer to Moses' complaint there that the Lord has done nothing to deliver his people, the Lord then reminds Moses that, look, I made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm aware of my people's situation and I have remembered my covenant. I have already remembered my covenant. I, I've already enacted my plans to bring about the fulfilment of my covenant promises. I'm already on the job. the task of delivering my people is already underway. Um, just by the by here, just note, I wonder if you sort of ever read through the story and thought, how come, how come God said it had to happen this way? Why all this mucking about with Pharaoh? I mean, you're going to go to Pharaoh and he won't believe you and, and then I'll do these signs and then he will. Like, why all that mucking about? Why not just do it in one hit? Well, we're not told here yet. But if you read a bit more widely around the story, you will get some hints, some, some, some messages from the Lord about why things are happening like this. I'm not going to go into it today. I'm going to leave that sort of hanging there for you. When we come back to Exodus at the end of first semester and we look in particular at the relationship between Pharaoh and the one true God, the God of Israel, we're going to explore that in more depth. But there is that question left hanging here, why is God doing it this way? But we're not told exactly yet. Well, Moses is then given a message to relay to the Israelites, which again ties together God's name and his covenant. And we're going to have a look at that. So, uh, to paraphrase it, picking out one particular verse, verse 7 of chapter 6, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's the message that Moses is to relay to the Israelites. So, what he's to tell them is there in verses 6 to 8, and there's a few things to note here. I'm not, uh, before I read it out, just note this. What the message that's to come to Israel starts and ends the same. It starts and ends exactly the same. Look in verse 6, look in verse 8. It starts with that phrase, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. So this revelation of God's character, his name, his power, that brackets everything else he has to say. That's the framework for understanding everything he has to say. And what does he talk about in the middle? He talks about his covenant promises. And he says, I will, I will, I will. I will, I'm not just emphasising for effect, he actually says seven times, so I will, I will and I will. Seven I wills in the bracketed by I am Yahweh. And what will he do? Well, let's have a look, verses 6 to 8. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgement. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I think the glorious centrepiece of that message is there in verse 7 which I put as the heading. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. That's a very significant verse, I think, in these chapters. And so it's worth just sort of pausing for a moment and just sort of reflecting on that just for a little bit. I've got two main points, I think, to make out of that verse. And uh, first one is this, you might like to jot it down because I think I might need to explain it. God rescues his people from idolatry to serve him. 
We often see the Exodus as God rescuing his people from what? God rescues his people from slavery. Right? That's how we understand the Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery. I've said something different. God rescues his people from idolatry to save him, to serve him. Of course, uh, it was a rescue from slavery, but I think it was a rescue from something greater than that. It was actually God rescuing these people from idolatry. I mentioned earlier that verse, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, which tells us that while the Israelites were in Egypt, they were worshipping Egyptian gods, gods that were not gods, these Egyptian idols. Somehow they had moved away from worshipping the one true God, And what the Lord, what Yahweh is doing here is he is taking a people for himself, a people with whom he will be in relationship with them as their God. And notice the initiative is all God's here. You might be aware that that phrase, you will be my people and I will be your God, that's a very common phrase in all of the Christian Bible. In fact that phrase, you will be my people and I will be your God, you can tell the whole Bible story under that phrase. You can start in the Garden of Eden. Because there's Adam and Eve in the Garden with God. There's God's people and there's God being their God. And you can trace it all the way through the Bible, all the way through to Revelation chapter 21. A great vision of the future that we're yet to experience, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and how's that described for us? Now the dwelling of God is with people. And they will be his people and he will be their God. It's the story of the whole Bible. But notice here, in one of the first times it appears in all the Bible, the word's a bit different. It's emphasising something. It's not, you will be my people, but I will take you as my people and I will be your God. The initiative is all God's here. It's emphasised for us. And that is true throughout all of God's dealings with humanity. It's true of God's dealings with you. The initiative is all God's. To the very end, to that great vision of the future in Revelation chapter 21, the initiative is always God's. He rescues people, even today, from idolatry, from worshipping gods that are not gods. All the other gods of this world, all the other religions, all those powerful gods of greed and pride and pleasure. Even today God is rescuing people from idolatry, taking them to be his own, that they might be his people and that he might be their God, that they might worship the one true God. Reminds me of that passage where Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, He writes there to these Thessalonian Christians and he says to them, he notices and rejoices in the fact that they have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. God rescues his people from idolatry to serve him. Second point out of that verse though is that God makes himself known to his people in his act of redemption. It was there in the second half of verse 7. It's by rescuing his people, by redeeming them, that God makes his relationship to his people clear. Um, A way of trying to illustrate this too, uh, right throughout the Bible, 
particularly in the Old Testament, God is often identified as, you know, in a phrase something like this, I am the Lord your God who... Any ideas? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. That's how God often is referred to right throughout the Old Testament. That's why, of course, we're studying the book of Exodus. It was such a significant moment in the history of God's dealings with his creation. I am the Lord your God, remember, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it's in that great act of redemption that God identifies himself. That's how you know who the one true God is. I'm the one who rescued you. In fact, it's often tied together with worshipping him alone. Uh, For instance, uh, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how they start? Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt remember, out of idolatry so what does he say? You shall have no other gods before me God is identified by his great act of redemption that's how he makes himself known to his people so it's interesting um, when you look at the Bible God doesn't stay known as the God of the Exodus That's not the dominant redemption by which God stays known. I'll throw to you a verse that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah 16, 14 and 15. Let me read to you. It's a prophecy, a promise for the future. And listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said there. He says, Therefore the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought his people uh, brought the people of Israel up out of the land of Egypt rather it will be said as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the lands that he had driven them what's happening here is the great redemption at the exodus is superseded in God's work through history it's superseded by what? his great act of redemption in bringing his people back from the exile many, many years later. No longer will we say the Lord who brought out of Egypt, it's now the Lord who brought his people back from exile. It's superseded again by an act of redemption, a greater act of redemption. But keep on going right throughout the Bible. You get through to the, to the, the great, the ultimate act of redemption in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is God known when Jesus has come? Well, to paraphrase some stuff from Ephesians chapter 1, how is God known in Ephesians chapter 1? God is there revealed as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, who has adopted us as his children in Christ and through the blood of Christ has redeemed us. God is always identified by his great act of redemption. Yes in the Exodus, yes in the exile. Yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who the one true God is the God who's redeemed. Okay, well having laid out all of that, just uh, take a step back in and just reflect. What have we seen in this great story? In chapters 5 and 6. They went to Moses, Father, followed by finger pointing. Whose fault is this? God, it's your fault. Followed by God reassuring Moses and giving a reassuring message to the Israelites. I'm on the job. I will fulfil my promise. How's the story going to end today? How are they going to respond to that? Surely they'll get back on God's bus and keep on going. 
today doesn't have a happy ending in this narrative. Let's look at what happens up to our final point. Faith or faithlessness in the God of promise. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. First look at the Israelites' response in verse 9. Moses told all this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. The end of chapter 4, they believed. Here, after experiencing failure first, even with the Lord's reassurance, no belief. They just wouldn't believe it. Hard hearts. What about Moses? Surely Moses will keep on trusting. He'll get back on the bus. No, look at verses 10 to 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord. The Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? Poor speaker that I am. Oh, come on, Moses. We've dealt with that, baby. Poor speaker that you are. That's why you've got your brother Aaron there, your media relations spokesperson. You know, he's going to do it. And you're harping on again about your poor public speaking ability. Sounds a bit like a broken record. Because the Israelites have decided not to listen to him, now Moses is convinced Pharaoh won't either. So neither the Israelites nor Moses are showing any, I think, real faith in God's promises that he actually has this in hand. Well, what does all that say to you and me? I hope at this point you might, you might after these three weeks, be asking a question when I ask, when I say, you know, what does this mean? I hope you, as some of you are going, well, hang on, Ron, before you sort of, just sort of read us back into the text here, and talk about, you know, our sort of experiences are like that. Is it really legitimate to form a parallel between their experiences back then and my experience today? I mean, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. And I'm not talking about, you know, space travel and mobile phones. A lot has changed in those intervening years. For instance, the fundamental identity of God's people has changed. It used to be the nation of Israel. But now, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the identity of God's people is all of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. That's a very fundamental difference of how God's people are identified. But also, the shape of the covenant between God and his people has changed. Yes, before, I mean, it was codified with all those particular laws that needed to be followed, you know, the rules of circumcision that we saw last week. But now, in Christ, all those laws have been fulfilled in Christ and we're set free from that old law code. So actually it's a very different situation. So how much parallel can we really establish there? Well, I want to say to you there are some continuities here, important ones, because God is still the same. And God is still the God who makes covenant promises. And we are still people who are living, waiting for those promises to be fulfilled in our experience. So in lots of ways there is a parallel between the Israelites then. They had God's great promises, you'll come out of the land, but they're experiencing so much failure. How were they to respond? We have God's greater promises, his new and better promises in Christ for a great future. But we experience so much failure. How are we going to respond? Faith in the God of promise? or faithlessness. 
What's more, there's even another parallel. Remember, they had been told exactly how the game plan would go. Exactly how it would go. They still didn't believe. They still wouldn't trust. And you know what? We've been told how the game plan will go. Jesus came and said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. We know how the game plan will go. We know we still live in a fallen world. A world where they kill the Lord of glory. Will we act with faith? Or will we be faithless in the God of promise? Finish by reading to you some verses from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, which I think capture some of some of this tension and the exhortation to God's people. Read there. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, friends, will prove faithful. He will keep his promise because he can't deny himself. Will we give in to faithlessness? That's the challenge for you and for me. So let me lead us in prayer as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ your very precious and great promises. We know that you are the Lord. With you nothing is impossible. And therefore we long for the day when all your promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ will be graciously and wonderfully fulfilled in our experience. And we do pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And we ask for the blessing of your Spirit to strengthen us that we might persevere in faith until that day when we see the Lord Jesus and all your promises fulfilled. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and our salvation. Amen.